Well, last week we launched our Roman series, and since then I've actually had a number of people ask me. So I heard that John Piper took around eight years, Martin Lloyd-Jones took around 12 years. How long are we going to take? Well, I think somewhere in the middle. No, I'm, I'm joking. We'll, we're looking at more like two years, so we'll get through the first half this year in May. We'll take some breaks along the way for the summer, etc., and then we'll come back and finish it up next year. Uh, but we're excited to be in the, the middle of Romans uh, being launched. Uh, this is our second sermon. Now, as we think about this, uh, we're going to be in Romans 1, 8 to 15 this morning, where we're going to find that Paul is actually praying for the gospel to bear fruit both locally and globally. Now, what's interesting is I often hear Christians, when they're talking about the nature of the church, they want to know what kind of church you are. Are you the kind of church that loves one another? That, that's, you know, to use a, sort of a pejorative that's along, this, uh, along with this often. Are you inverted, an inward church? Uh, or are you one of those, like, missional, mission-minded churches that looks outward? What's fascinating is when you look at Paul and the way that he speaks about the church, he actually says that those are not two concepts that are actually uh, sort of fighting or sparring with one another. But instead, what he's going to say this morning and what he'll say throughout is, is that the church that is really best prepared to take the gospel to the nations is a gospel where you are mutually edifying, encouraging, and loving one another. So that's what we're going to see Paul say this morning. Now, just to catch you up to speed, if you're just joining us, uh, I think that what Paul is going to show us this morning is that mutual edification propels worldwide evangelization. Now, last week, Paul wrote this deeply theological letter after his third missionary journey. He is 25 years out from that Damascus Road conversion experience. It's a lot of experiences that he's had between that road and here. And I think that as he writes this letter, he actually has a number of purposes. Now, now one, I think, purpose that you might find if you read the letter a couple of times is you'll notice that there seemed to be a kind of division in the church between Jews and Gentiles. Now, the way that I understand uh, the likelihood of where this came from is that you'll remember in 49 A.D., the emperor Claudius sent all of the Jews and Jewish Christians, all of them out of the city, until he dies five years later, and the Jewish Christians begin to sort of filter back in. But when they come back home, it's like they're visitors in their own home. It is a mostly now Gentile church that has grown and and created new uh, leadership uh, folks that are serving in the roles of elders and that kind of thing. And so as they come back, they find a different place, and there are some divisions that have been created as Paul shows up just maybe four or five years after they've come back together. But not only that, it seems that some of the Christians here began to question if Paul cared about the Roman church since he had not yet visited them, which really is striking given that this is the the capital of the empire. You would expect him to go there to share the gospel first if he cared about them and the gospel. And also notice that as you read through, they questioned if his gospel was even different than their gospel. Even uh, maybe some of them thought that he was lazy for not having shown up yet. But as we come this morning and and to the rest of this gospel, what we find is that Paul has been explaining that he really planned to come to Rome. He was going to do it on the way to take the gospel to Spain. 
But as he does this, what we find is, is that he is writing a letter to prepare them for this journey. So if we're really thinking about Romans, and you're trying to think about what kind of document or letter is this, it is, I think, at least a missionary letter, preparing them for his missionary journey. And Paul, he needs to encourage gospel unity locally in Rome to instill confidence in them that Paul is indeed an apostle who preaches the same gospel so that they will help him go on his journey to Spain. So our series for this, our, our series title for this is that the gospel, unity, propels mission. Now here's the big idea this morning as we get ready. Our big idea is this, you can write this down. The gospel of God gives us a heart for mutual edification and worldwide evangelization. The gospel of God gives us a heart for mutual edification and worldwide evangelization. That's what we're thinking about this morning. Now notice first that Paul, he begins praying, thanking God for the Romans' famed faith in verse 8. So, in ancient letters, they would have often begun with a thanks to the gods. It was in the proem, or the, the second main part of the letter, but I'm struck by the way that Paul doesn't come in hot, saying, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. People know who I am. I mean, just think about this. He's never visited this church. He's introducing himself. He's being questioned in his authority and his role. And even as an apostle coming with the authority of Christ, he's not making much of him. Now, some seem to have questioned Paul's gospel and apostleship, but here he begins with the thanksgiving for them. Now, that first, there's no second or third, so I think what he means by this is this is of first importance or to begin with. And catch what he says there in verse 8. He says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, Throughout Paul's letters, we get a glimpse into the prayer life of the Apostle. And here what we find is that Paul doesn't pray to the gods, plural, some kind of pantheon. But instead he prays to my God, and his God is the God who can only be approached through the person and work of Christ Jesus. And we saw that the gospel of God centers on Jesus Christ in verse 3, and that Paul sees himself as a servant of the living Christ in verse 1, who has sent him about the obedience of faith for the nations. But here Paul says Jesus is also the one mediator between God and man. Even as he is an apostle, must approach the throne of grace through his ascended Christ, who sits in the presence of the Father to make con continual intercession for the saints. Paul does not have a fast track in line. He still needs the same Christ that you and me need as we go before Christ in prayer. But notice a couple of important details here. Paul says, I pray for all of you. Now with the friction between Jewish and Gentile Christians, given Jewish Christians recently returning from being expelled to a now mostly Gentile church, you can see Paul speaking to unify them affirming his ministry to all of them together. He's not just there for Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, he's there for all of them. And notice, second, that the reason for his prayer 
is that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now sometimes this word for faith means the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is in the content of the gospel, an objective kind of thing. But here it seems that Paul is more likely speaking about their lives lived in obedient response to the gospel. Now Paul is clearly using hyperbolic language. Uh, You'll notice that he is speaking in big terms about the far-reaching implications of their faithfulness amongst the nations. He's not saying here, though, with this language, I don't think, that every human on the planet has heard of their faith. No, he, he encourages this church like he encouraged the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, where he says that he is encouraged that their witness is known not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but everywhere. And he encouraged the Colossians, who were producing fruit and growing everywhere in the world. Now, don't miss this. Paul leads with the fruit of others, not his fruit. Did you catch that? It tells you something about the nature of Paul. I mean, I think some of this has to do with the structure of the letter, and some of this has to do with the composition of Paul's heart. He wants to begin by talking about the good that he sees in these Christians. If anybody had fruit, it was Paul. Paul had a truckload of fruit. This is an apostle who suffered for the gospel, planted churches, saw conversion, worked miracles, and yet what we find here with Paul is is that he doesn't begin with this. Instead, did you notice that he begins with gratitude to God for the famous fruit of the Romans. He's not in it for himself, his own platform, his own glory. Let me just offer a couple of quick applications from this. First, and let me slow down for this, just in case you miss it, it is okay to be encouraging. Did y'all catch that? Let me slow it down again. Our culture might say otherwise, but I want you to know, Christians, people of God, people who love Jesus, it is okay to be encouraging. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to build people up. It's not weak. It's actually, I believe, strong. It builds up and strengthens others. It helps them to endure to the end. In fact, if you look at Romans 15.5, you find that Paul later in this same letter says that it is good to be encouraging because it is godlike. Did y'all catch that? It is godlike to be encouraging. Romans 15.5 says the God of endurance and encouragement. Think about this. When you are encouraging others in right and appropriate ways, not lying, not trying to be dishonest to get something back, but instead noticing evidences of the Spirit of God in the lives of others, it is a good thing. It is a godlike thing. Uh, Our elders and staff have been talking a lot recently about the kind of leadership that we want at Trinity Bible Church and We hope to create a a kind of language that we use to speak about leadership, and we haven't codified anything officially yet, but one word that keeps coming up is the word encouragement. We want to be a a kind of place where we are encouraging others. In fact, we were recently at a, a staff retreat, and we had one brother speak up, and he said, what I love about our leadership and our church is that we are passionate about truth, but we're not jerks about it. I like that. 
I think I think I would add to that that those who are here in leadership, we would hope that not only are we passionate about truth, not jerks about it, but that we really do seek to encourage others to help them in enduring to the end. See, those who endure to the end need the encouragement of a local church, according to Paul. Uh, We tend to be general with our encouragements and specific with our critiques. But I would just encourage us as a congregation to flip that on its head and to look for specific ways in which we can encourage one another about spiritual fruit in their lives. That means we need to know our Bibles and we need to know one another. If if you're going to speak to someone with a a kind of a a more of a specificity than a Hallmark card, you're going to actually need to know them and you're going to need to know your Bibles. And I believe that it's that kind of encouragement that helps us make it to the end. We long to be seen and even more to be seen as having fruit. I bet one of the things that you long for in your life that maybe you haven't identified yet is that you wish people could just see you and not only see you, but see the good parts of you and not only see the good parts of you, but also to when they're looking at you and see you, actually see evidence that the Holy Spirit is living in and through you. And if that is not something that we are as a church doing, then who's doing it? So you can't miss that the Romans' fruit of a reputation among the nations also parallels Paul's calling to the nations. He says, you're, you're already doing the very thing that I've been called to, and we're linking arms in this call. But second, did you catch that Paul thanks God for the fruitfulness of the Roman Christians? Very strange. Do you think that Paul here is saying, God, I'm thankful that this thing has happened? Aren't you? Who'd have thought? Isn't this great? Aren't you as surprised as I am? Or do you think there's some kind of integrity behind his thankfulness to God as though God is exercising some kind of sovereign role and has some kind of credit for what's taking place? You know, I know in my house, if I send John to go get me a Coke and he shows up with one, and I thank Ben, everybody's going to look at me as though it's strange. But here what we find is, is that these Roman Christians have a testimony that is going to the nations. And Paul says, I thank my God for that. And nobody thinks it's inappropriate. It's because it's for God's glory. It's because it's God Himself working through His Spirit that is bringing about the fullness of what is taking place. See, their faith, their faithfulness, their fruitfulness. Paul is thankful to God for these things. Similarly, Paul thanks God constantly in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 that when they received the Word, they accepted it not as the Word of men, but what it really was, the Word of God. So Paul is saying, I'm grateful to God that you received it with faith, not as a Word from men, but a Word from God. He credits God with that. So the fruit that we desire is a spiritual fruit that comes empowered by the Holy Spirit of God through Christ to the glory of God. But second, notice that Paul prays constantly and always to see them for mutual encouragement. He wants to see them for mutual encouragement. Now look with me again at what he says in verses 9 to 12 where he is shifting from thanksgiving to a a prayer of petition that he might visit the church. Here's what he says. Verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing... I mention you always in my prayers 
asking somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. See, Paul's calling on God as the only witness who can testify to his eagerness to see the Romans. Only God can do that, to to know the condition of his heart. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. I do this to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Paul sees our very hearts. Paul says that God sees our very hearts and that God sees his heart and knows his motives, his eagerness to come to them. They might doubt it, but he is appealing to God himself. Paul also highlights that he's not free to move about the cabinet at will. He he can't just go where he wants. Did you notice that? He, he has good plans and good prayers, but he's not just free to do whatever he wants because he says also, I serve God with my spirit in the gospel of his son. I am submissive to God in his will and his plan. Now that word for serve is a pregnant word. It comes with a lot of meaning. It's a word that's used in the Old Testament to describe God's people worshiping God or serving in a religious service of God. And so Paul understands that his life, his whole life is worshipful service to God. Every bit of it. There are no private days. There are no private thoughts. They are all lived before the all-seeing God. And notice that this phrase, with my spirit, is used and is is hard. It's actually interpreted, I looked it up, like nine different ways. Probably more than that. But they range from something like the service of the Holy Spirit in Paul to a spiritual service as opposed to a kind of carnal service to just a wholehearted service, you know, with all that's in him for God. And maybe there's a a mixing of some of these. But Gordon Fee says this reference to Spirit must speak of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life. I think that he's likely largely right. So Paul sees his whole apostolic ministry to be an act of wholehearted worshipful service to God through the Holy Spirit. And notice he says that it's in the particular sphere of the Gospel of God's Son. In other words, Paul's unceasing and always prayers are driven by his worshipful service to God. But did you notice that he adds that it must be by God's will that he is able to come? Now here again, we see him pointing to God's will. And later he'll say that he was prevented. So that he seems to assume that it's God's will that ultimately, not immediately, but ultimately allows him to go or not to go. Now take note, Paul prays for what God has called him to. Did you catch that? He he called him. He verbally spoke to Paul in a way that he has not verbally, literally spoken to us from heaven, from a light, in calling him to the nations. And so he is wanting to what? Go to the nations. And he is praying for what? That the Lord will allow him to go to the nations. The thing that he's asked him to do. And yet he still submits all of this to the will of God. Now, I was reading about this phrase, this like according to the will of God kind of language, and there was a study that was done by Adolf Deisman of this phrase, and he said that he has shown that in the Semitic and ancient world, this was a, a phrase that was used by everyone, even to the lower spheres and strata of society. It, it was kind of like someone who would say, it became a saying that was kind of like, you know, uh, man, I hope I can go to the football game tomorrow and get tickets, knock on wood, that sort of thing. See, this should cause us to take note that Paul obviously means something more 
as a Christian. That he is actually submitting to the will of God in all of the events of his life. I think this should influence our prayer lives in a couple of ways. First, let me just ask you this. How much of your prayer life is shaped by the will of God? How much of it is shaped by what you understand of God's grand purposes in creation to be? How much of what you ask for shows that you really are primarily concerned about making much of the glory of Christ? I think what you should pray for, what you ask for, when you pray, when we pray, is actually showing something about what we treasure and what we love. Do you pray for the sanctification of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel with your friends or your coworkers or other students at school? Are, are you praying for missionaries and Christians that are living in persecuted nations? You know, we, we should pray for healing and successful contract negotiations and good grades. We should pray for presidential elections. All these things are good. But our mission to make disciples of the nations, I believe, should significantly shape the nature of our prayers. And also, how much do we trust in God's will in our lives? Now just think about this. When you're praying, how many of you have often prayed and thought to yourself, well, the, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and woman, and, and, and as I pray, I, I'm praying for something I desperately want. I've looked to the Bible. It's a good thing. And so you're faithful. You're even living better because you're just, you're knowing that God's about to show up and you're praying for this thing and you're being faithful and you know it's the kind of thing that God wants and then it doesn't happen and all of a sudden you do what? You think to yourself, okay, who broke that? Did I mess up in some way? such that God did not hear my prayer. Where was it? I can't find it. Or have you thought, well, it must be somebody else's fault. Like all those people that were praying for me, I know one of them was supposed to be a righteous person, but it did not avail much in my life. And once that, that sort of goes, you know, you're thinking, well, okay, maybe that's it, but maybe it's because God just doesn't really love me. Hear this. Paul he is praying for God to do what God has said He is going to do through him. He has actually given his life to making it to Asia with the Gospel on his next fourth missionary journey. And yet, he says that it was all submissive to the will of God. And by the way, he doesn't ultimately, it, it says, get to go yet again. Many times, many plans were broken up I believe that this gives us a picture of the nature of the will of God in our lives. You know, sometimes things don't work out the way that we want. Good things. I'm not talking about the bad stuff. I'm talking about good things. We pray for well. We're living right. And yet it doesn't happen. And what do we say at those moments? I am trusting what? God's will. His purposes. That they're good for me as His child. Uh, I had a friend who used to use this phrase, Lord willing, almost as a punctuation mark. So he would say, hey, uh, Lord willing, I'm going to play basketball tomorrow, Lord willing. 
And then, Lord willing, you will join me, Lord willing, and we will go get hot dogs. Lord willing, of course. And I, I used to think, man, that's a little bit too much. I think one Lord willing is enough. I think it covers the whole. And sometimes we do need to repent. Sometimes there is something that we need that the Lord's working in our lives. In fact, I'd say all the time He's working in us, trust, faith, hope. But sometimes we, we need to be cognizant of the fact, always we need to be cognizant of the fact that God's will is sovereign over our lives. Our plans don't always go as we think they should. We don't get to tell God what is right. Uh, one of the verses that encourages me all the time as a Christian is Ephesians 1.11. That we have a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of His will, not my will. Will William Cowper uh, is a prime example of this. I don't know if you've heard of this guy, but he is a, a hymn writer. He wrote one famous hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Maybe that's you this morning. Life has not gone the way that you thought it should. You sense that you've been faithful. You're praying. He's not doing what you think he ought to do. And all you can be left with at the end of the day is it seems like God is working in a very mysterious way. I, I cannot figure it out. Now, his mysterious way was that he was born with depression, just to give you sort of a snapshot of how bad it was. As a child, his dad, he was really sharp. His dad said, hey, I want you to go read this book on suicide and then come back with some arguments with why it's wrong. And he came back and he said, you know, I think he made some valid points. This is a man who his whole life struggled with deep depression. And you know who the Lord sent to William Cowper as he was pastoring in Olney? John Newton, who came, the great psalm writer pastor, to encourage his soul day by day with hymns, writing songs with him, taking care of him, pointing him towards Jesus. That was a mysterious way. He struggled all of his days with, with depression as he prayed for deliverance, as John prayed for deliverance. And yet, it doesn't seem that he ever was delivered from the strong depression that overshadowed him. John Newton went on to help start the Church Missionary Society. Cowper struggled with depression the rest of his days. See, the Gospel of God shapes our plans while we also submit to the will of God, not always understanding why things work out the way they, they have. But what we do know is, is that God works all things together for the good of His people. Now, Newton, his encouragement helped Cowper's faith. And Paul hoped to find this kind of encouragement in Rome from his difficult days as he went to visit these Christians. Notice that Paul longs to see the Roman church for mutual edification in verses 11 to 12. He says, I've got missions on the mind, but I'd like to have mutual encouragement. Uh, he says in verses 11 to 12 this. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul says the reports he's receiving through the letters and words of mouth from others about the faithfulness of the Romans are they're not enough for him. In fact, if you read Paul's letters, you'll notice that he puts a massive premium on embodied face-to-face -face fellowship. And here Paul mentions two reasons that he wants to visit them. He says, first, I, I want to come to you so I can impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now that phrase, spiritual gift, it's not used elsewhere by Paul. It could mean a lot of things. Uh, he might be talking about one or a few of those spiritual gifts that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Maybe a specific word or ability that God has given him to encourage them. 
Or maybe he's talking about the preaching of the gospel that he mentions at the end of verse 15. But take note, Paul's first impulse to see the Romans, are you with me? Is not for what he can get out of them. But his first impulse is to bless, encourage, strengthen, and build up the church. That's his desire to be amongst them. Now let me just ask you, when you think about your posture towards meeting with your local church face to face, what is it that you think? Do you go when you go in for what you will get out or praying that you will have a life-giving and a faith-strengthening impact on others? I believe that Paul's posture is that he would have a life-giving and faith-strengthening impact on others. He is hoping that he is a blessing to them. That's his desire. That's his heart. And when I think about that, it's kind of like the nature, the way that you view the church, it's, it's kind of like the reality that you can kind of get some of the same stuff from the world, but it's way different in the church, right? Just let me give you an imperfect illustration. Uh, it's kind of like the difference for me between getting a Starbucks coffee and when my son Jack makes coffee for me. Okay, let me, let me sort of parse this out for you a little bit. Both Starbucks and Jack make great coffee, but Jack's coffee encourages my soul in a unique way. Now, one barista remembers me by order and sometimes remembers my name, which is pretty impressive because I'm kind of a complicated guy just like my coffee. But Jack's coffee, he comes, he comes with a unique kind of encouragement. Even though both the barista and Jack are smiling at me, I know at the end of the day it is less likely that I'll get the smile or at least the coffee if I don't pay for it. Why? Well, because that's kind of a transactional relationship. I'm the consumer. It's what you do for good business practices. But Jack makes me coffee because he loves me. He throws the pot in the Keurig, he adds the two Splenda, a little bit of cream, some whipped cream on top, and then he gives it to me with joy. Now why does he do that? Well, it's because he wants to encourage me with the demonstration of his love. That's why Jack's coffee is so much better than Starbucks. Now, I hope that our church is a lot more like family for you than Starbucks. That you're showing up for what you expect because you put your money in the cup and maybe left a good tip. But instead, you were coming like Jack would come for his family, knowing that even more so, we're the spiritual family of God. We are children of the Father from heaven who has given His Son for us. And that's what drives our love for one another. That's why we serve. We serve not because of what we get out of it, but because of what's been put into us through Christ. See, Paul wants to strengthen and encourage his spiritual family. And second, Paul wants to see them for mutual encouragement. In other words, he says, I want to encourage you, but, but catch this, I know I'm an apostle. I'm kind of, like I know I'm kind of a big deal positionally, but I don't have to say it. But also know this, I need you to encourage me. Even as an apostle, I'm not above a need to be encouraged so that I too endure to the end. See, the apostle Paul needs the body of Christ to encourage him as well. He's not above it. Romans 12 mentions the diversity of gifts given to the body. And he uses the imagery there of members of one body in Christ. Some will encourage Paul verbally. Brother, you've it was your message that actually led to me coming to Christ. 
Lord used you in that way. Others will show hospitality, maybe letting Paul stay for weeks, months, in their homes, feeding him. And in Romans 15, 24, Paul says that he hopes they will contribute to help him on his missionary journey to Spain after he has enjoyed their company for a while. Now, if the great apostle Paul needs a local church, so do we. You know, it was just last week a young woman was asking me how to mature in her faith. And I said, I'll give you two things that have most helped me. Join a local church, be faithful, and find someone to meet with for one-to-one discipleship. Those things, when I've been engaged in those, as opposed to the rest of my spiritual life when I was not, have resulted in a disproportionate amount of spiritual growth. That intentionality has led to all kinds of fruit in my life that I did not expect. Greater than when I tried to go it along, listen to podcasts, watch video sermons, it was actually knowing real embodied people that changed my life. Let me just add a note on discipleship. We're encouraging this semester one-to-one discipleship. We always do, but here intentionally so, just reminding us that this is important for our lives. And the conversation inevitably comes up, we're meeting, but I don't know who's discipling who. Who's the apostle in this relationship? Now, sometimes it seems clear, sometimes not. Uh, I remember in college, I had gone through most of my spiritual walk without having somebody meet with me, disciple me, and uh, for three years, he met with me. He went through the Bible with me. Often, he would take me for good pizza and go through the scriptures with me, which helped me want to study the Bible more. And, And then later, Uh, he began to invite me into his home and I would see how he loved his wife and his kids and the way that he had devotions with them and prayed for them and corrected them in in godly ways and encouraged them in godly ways. And it changed my life. I didn't even know that this thing that he was doing was called discipleship until I was in a pastoral internship and they started explaining what discipleship was. I was like, oh yeah, that's been done to me before. That thing changed my life. I didn't know that's what you called it. Many years later, I introduced him to some people as the man who discipled me in college and changed my life. And you know what he said? What, you were discipling me. Now, let me just be clear. I was not discipling him. I was in college, and I had to apologize for a lot. But I think I understand what he meant. I think what he was trying to express is what I've heard from many older Christians who have faithfully discipled others, and it's this. I came to be a blessing to you. And I left feeling like I got the greater blessing because of what the Lord did. And the Lord met me in that moment. I pray that many of us have those kinds of experiences in our lives. See, mature Christians, I have found are open to being encouraged by other Christians and expressing gratitude for it, even as they are sacrificially serving others. They aren't gurus, they are servants of Jesus, equally needy for grace. Now, just a warning, sometimes it might feel like you wasted your time. But then we trust the will of God that He's doing more than we can see with our eyes, don't we? So just be faithful. And don't you want to look on that last day when you're before Jesus to your left and right, and see those who say they have helped, you have helped them endure to the end. I hope that we all hear this. 
But notice that Paul needed also an embodied church to encourage him and support the mission of God. He says letters are not enough. If he were here today, he would say, text, not enough. TikTok videos don't quite accomplish what I'm looking for. They're, they're fine, not good. Blogs, Facebook, chat rooms, Instagram, even your live stream service that you have really updated the quality. None of those things are sufficient. They're, they're not adequate. I need embodied relationship with real people week in and week out to help me make it to the end. Christian, the Holy Spirit unites us with flesh and blood assemblies of people and just a disclaimer, Paul knew that things were relationally messy in Rome. He knew that that healthy church was not a sinless church without its problems. And yet, what he says and what he shows is that healthy churches, they patiently love sinners and help Christians to respond faithfully to their sins. Paul says he needed this imperfect church to encourage him, the apostle. And we need it too. Third, Paul's mission is to preach the gospel to Rome and all people. Now, Paul seems to shift in verse 13 to the, the body of his letter. He is reiterating his eagerness to be with them, just as he had mentioned in verse 10 above. And you can understand why some may have questioned Paul's absence, given he's been called to preach the gospel to the Gentile nations, of which they are a part. And Rome is the center of the Gentile world as the capital of the empire. So why hasn't he shown up? Well, I'm not so sure the absence makes the heart grow fonder statement is true. Especially during COVID, I found that absence doesn't always make the heart grow fonder. Sometimes it makes it more critical and skeptical. And that seems to be what's happened here with Paul. Some seem to question his version of the gospel or his care for them, or even if he's being derelict in his apostolic duties. But Paul says this in verse 1. I mean, verse 13. He says that he was prevented from coming to his brothers. He's prevented. Now you can only imagine how unifying this is for Paul to call this mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles brothers, which would have included sisters. These are brothers from another mother, but have a common father through faith in Jesus Christ. And those in Christ are spiritual family. And here's what he says in verse 13 about his absence. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may recap, or reap rather, a harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul here is showing that his call has both local implications for Rome, but that they are part of something much bigger. The gospel of God has global implications, worldwide implications. Notice first that he really intended to come, but was prevented, even though he was trying to do the will of God. Now we can't be sure what exactly prevented him. Elsewhere in Thessalonians, he said it was Satan that prevented him from coming to them. Acts 16, 6-7 tells us that it was the Spirit of Jesus Christ that prevented Paul from going to preach the Gospel in Bithynia. In other words, many things can interrupt our good plans. Finances, sicknesses, locked keys in the car. Again, but there are also spiritual forces at play like Satan, demons, the Spirit of Jesus, and the decrees of God. But also in verses 14 to 15, notice that Paul's ministry is to Rome and the nations. Notice that he says there that his aim was to reap some spiritual harvest among the Romans as well as the rest of the Gentiles from the world. That is, the ethnos or the nations. 
Now, to use an illustration, Paul, I think, in this section, is trying to help the Roman Christians to see that an iPhone can be used for a lot more than a selfie. They are looking at themselves, they are inverted. There are divisions and challenges that have perhaps caused them to become narrow-sighted and focus on themselves. They are focused locally on the problems rather than moving out their vision, panning out to a wide lens to see the gospel global implications for the gospel of God. See, Paul says, check out this panoramic view. This panoramic view of what God's doing amongst the nations. Don't forget this story, this thing that God's doing. It's about more than just you and Rome. It's about all nations. I think verse 14 is further developing this. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and the foolish. Now those two couplets, people take them in different ways. I want to just sort of unpack it because I think he's giving us now a kind of 3D view of the nature that he's looking at, the focus of the gospel ministry. But what he's doing is, is he says uh, that as he says that he is to preach it to the Greeks, Greeks was a word that Jews used during their day to speak of Gentiles as opposed to Jews. So here he's saying the Gentile nations. Barbarians is an interesting word. Uh, it, it's a word that is, it kind of has like an onomatopoeic value to it. In other words, it sounds like what it is. Uh, the word itself literally in Greek is barbaroi, and it, it's meant to sound like sort of your you're stuttering or you're saying uh, gibberish or stammering. It's sort of incognizant, like words that you just can't understand. It was a pejorative that would have been used for those who didn't speak Greek, like nations like the Persians or the Egyptians, who were outside of the Roman Empire, or on the edges of the empire, like the Gauls, the Germans, and Spain, a people that he wanted to go towards with the gospel. See, Paul sees himself as obligated by his calling as an apostle to take the gospel of God to the nations from those who speak Greek and Rome to the barbarians with that strange language on the outer edges of the kingdom. Now, some see wise and fool to talk about the same people, but here again, I think he's talking about more like height and breadth in some ways, in the sense, or height and depth in the sense that he's speaking of through all those nations, whether they are wise or they are fools, those are the people that I've been called to to take the gospel. And then Paul ends in verse 15 saying this, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now closing, two quick points. First, Paul says these Christians still need the gospel. Did you catch that? He's speaking to a church in Rome with Jewish and Gentile Christians. And he says, I want to come and preach the gospel to you. Now here's one implication of that. The gospel isn't just the ABCs of Christianity, as though like, here's if you believe this, then you're a Christian, and now you don't need it anymore. You've graduated beyond the gospel. No, Paul is saying here, the gospel is actually the A to Z of Christianity. It is the full alphabet. It is what we are trying to understand about the nature of who God is and its implications for our lives. It's the gospel message that constantly strengthens and transforms us. Have you found yourself discouraged in your faith? Falling to sin again? Facing a difficult marriage? Desperate for hope? And in that moment, ask yourself, I wish I just knew the secret to success in my faith in this area of life. 
as though there's some kind of like guru out there that has some magic formula that's going to give you the answer that's going to make your life easy again. Let me say this. Jesus has already given us the mystery that has been disclosed in his person and work. It is the gospel. That is the message that we turn to for hope. We need the biblical gospel as Christians. As Jerome said about the scriptures themselves, they're shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for theologians to swim without ever reaching the bottom. The gospel brings that same kind of fathomless help to God's children. You don't grow beyond your need of the gospel. And second, Paul works back from his call to the nations to Rome. In other words, we began with Rome wondering why Paul had not come to them, and Paul then shifted their vision to the gospel of God for the nations. And he's saying, I'm called to you also. In other words, you're part of something bigger, and you're not the only part, not even the main part, a significant part, but still part of the grand redemptive purposes of God. So catch this. This letter aims at bringing unity locally in Rome and building a relationship between them and Paul. But fundamentally, he hopes that they will gain a vision for supporting the message of the gospel to go to the nations. Why? Because the gospel of God moves us to love one another, but then to seek to take the gospel to the nations because it's just that good. So the gospel of God, it gives us a heart for mutual edification and worldwide evangelization. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have given us good news, that you have encouraged us with hope. Hopeless people, rebels, enemies have been made adopted children. Father, we pray that you would let us as a church be a people who has unity amongst us. And Father, give us a heart for our neighborhoods and for the nations that we would love to share with others the good message of your gospel. And Father, if there are those here today that do not know you, we pray that they would not leave without putting their faith in you about talking to another Christian about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's in the great name of your son that we do pray. Amen.